Hello and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm Gabriel Krauser and I'm joined by Nicholas Lorimer, my co-host. How's it, Nick? How's it, Gabriel? Uh, I would like to point out to the listeners that this is what I, at least our second, possibly our third, depending on how you count them, attempt to start this because uh, the technology is not helping so much right now. He's like, yeah, the tech's not working so great, but I have had to come poolside here on the farm, so I'm surrounded by weavers and ducks. If you hear some weaver and duck sounds in the background, uh, just imagine a bucolic scene uh, of tranquility uh, in the middle of which is a ball of anger and frustration. I'm really, really jealous about that outside there that that you're kind of showing me. I'm getting to see the sky in a way that's not sort of... You know, a small patch just above. I mean, I've got a very I, 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 the place I stay. It's got a very nice garden, but it's not. It's not like where you are, <laughs> dude. I am feeling the, my highlight of the week was definitely walking down, just like everyone else. I decided to take a half day at some point and walk down the driveway to the street. But the driveway is two point eight kilometers long. You lucky, uh, lucky little pig, you. <laughs> so the good six walk and I had a couple of dogs with me and they went swimming in a flay trying to catch pheasants and, and uh, other birds and they couldn't do it but they were swimming like maniacs and it was adorable that's wonderful uh, my dog just barks at me every time I try to walk in the garden because she wants me desperately to chase her so you know yeah dude I gotta say dog psychology like I find very helpful like it definitely takes up more time than ever before at like uh, dinner uh, dinner conversation and I think it's because as we therapeutically analyze our dog's psychological states we also do a good job of kind of identifying the same problems that we're feeling well uh, bit, I suppose so, yeah, I mean, so we're, yeah. we're both in a bit of a, a foul mood I think I think the, the, uh, the, the horrors of quarantine are getting to us um you know, as pleasant as our particular quarantine on a relative's uh, basis, uh, circumstances yeah. are, yeah. Uh, it's Even still not it's great. Really nice. yeah. So, um, we, we don't want to indulge that. We want to kind of stick to some of the more uh, political uh, sides of that frustration, the, the sharp points. Uh, and Nick, I think, you've got, I think you've got a frustration with our, our allies, for want of a better word, people who, generally speaking think along the same lines they think that individuals are the kernels of society that the voluntary groups that they form especially families really matter that liberty is just that thing that political systems should be designed to protect uh and a lot of people who've been thinking like that seem to have uh, gone a, uh, gone a, gone awry there's a bit of drifting what's going on yeah, so I mean, look, this this isn't confined to to people who who kind of are on the same page as us, broadly speaking. Um, everyone's sort of doing it, uh, but I expect basically I expect better of our ideological allies. Um, I, I I get the feeling that you know there's quite a lot of 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 people advancing arguments with an awful lot of certainty. Uh, they say, ah, this proves that I was right all along. Um, there's an awful lot of, you know, pulling out some, there's a study or an article or something and then being very definite about it. But I feel like that's not really working right now because we are in a time of extraordinary uncertainty and an enormous amount of information overload. Um, and I think that 
everyone needs to be a bit more cautious about the about the the calls they're making on a lot of things, except the WHO being bad. I mean, we'll talk about that later, but that's something that I'm fully on board with. Very little nuance, <laughs> in my opinion, there. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to bring up... So I think there's like a deeply interesting thing going on here in the esteem economy. And this is sketchy. Please take what I'm saying with a very heavy grain of salt. Because it's so delicious, probably uh, it's lacking some nuance. But, you know, so the fundamental thing is that we went from having no one a year ago having an opinion about the SARS-CoV-2 virus to everyone in the world having an opinion about it. No one having, almost no one having a practical opinion about how you should deal with a pandemic to now everyone having very active opinions, very, very, very passionately held. And so it's that sudden change, which it's, you know, the esteem economy is just like the power economy. It's just like the property economy. If you have a revolution, you've got a new government. You've got all kinds of teething problems, even if really good people take over. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the federalists in America, there was a lot of tensions. There were a lot of kind of bubbles being burst, and there were there major a, oversights. There, there, there was there was even a rebellion against the new government in uh, uh, relatively early on. I think uh, the whiskey rebellion against George Washington. Exactly, and that was about whiskey tax. And this very similar thing happens in Germany under Bismarck. Bismarck takes Prussia, expands it, unites all of Germany kind of for the first time in a while. The darkest day in the last 200 years. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's all going quite well. And it's a very efficient bureaucracy in a lot of ways. He sets up a social safety net for the old, for the weak, for the, for the ill. Um, and then there's this beer rebellion where, I mean, the tax that was introduced on beer was so marginal. The whiskey tax was so marginal. But it just like, they were, it, it was all so sudden that uh, any bit of criticism was hard to channel into a precise way and into a productive way. And instead, you sort of you quickly find these factional kind of, these esteem teams, as I call them, where it's like, you, where all that really matters is turning on the shame, turning off your brain. It's, all that matters is shaming the other team and saying, you know, we've got one little data point that points to them uh, having done something that's wrong. Therefore, we interpret malign intent. Therefore, we call them the enemy. Therefore, the more sympathetic you are to them, the more of an enemy you are. And the, and the more you question us, the more of an enemy you are. So you... And then you've got both sides saying that about the other side, and, and then it's very hard to resolve that without guns. Um, so here's a particularly interesting thing about, uh, about medicine to me. And it's, and it's, I think, I can't remember this doctor's first name. I think it's John. His surname is Ionidas. Ion, He's a Greek guy, Greek-based. And he, I remember learning about him when I was at university. Um, he is one of the most cited medical uh, experts in the world, one of the most respected. He, uh, you know, when in normal times, he gets flown around all the time. He's kind of got his own hospital on an island called Ioannidis. Like, it's got the same name as him in Greece. It's really beautiful. And what has made him famous is that he has proved time and again in various different ways that most journal, peer-reviewed, published articles about medicine are, for want of a better word, bullshit. Yes. No, so, I, I, don't they call it the, uh, the replication problem? Tell that me about the replication just, problem. Uh, so I'm not very clear on, what, uh, on this because I haven't read about it, but I've seen it talked about a bit, which is um, this problem that in a lot of uh, fields, uh, I think particularly psychology was one of the worst hit by this, um, 
there was extreme difficulty in replicating the results of experiments in other experiments that tried the same thing to see whether the first experiment was done correctly. So a lot of famous psychological experiments, uh, I think like the, the one about where the prisoners got to torture people, uh, I can't remember what it was called. Um, that one, for example, I think was not replicated well in, in a follow-up study. So, 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 so this is but one of the problems. Uh, uh, here's, here's an example. Okay, let, let me give you a quick breakdown. One of the things that he does is, um, and this is decades ago, 2000, early 2000, is uh, he starts making his name. He says, let's use political scientists have long kind of followed Arrow, Arrow's theorem, and uh, this other French guy whose name I forget at the moment, uh, who basically said, okay, here, you know, here's like just a computer uh, analysis, which happens to be true. If every person has a slightly better than 50% chance of knowing something, you've got a, you've got a proposition, P or not P, you know, there's, there's 10 trees over there or there's not 10 trees over there or whatever. If everyone's got a slightly better than 50% chance of, of uh, saying P if P is true and saying not P if not P is true, in other words, of being accurate, then if you take everyone and you get them to vote, the group's vote will be even more likely to be correct than the individual's. Yeah, yeah the wisdom uh, of the chance. masses no. sort of so thing. This is the wisdom of the masses. Now, there's a problem which is like if everyone is slightly less likely than 50% likely to be correct, then if you just choose a random person, you've got about a 50%, just under 50% chance of getting the right answer. But if you add them all together, they're going to really vote for the wrong answer. So, but we, we think that mostly people are reasonable enough to, to have a decent chance of knowing the truth. But here's what really screws it up. When you get into conversation and when you start lobbying, uh, you can have all kinds of distorting effects. And this is sort of a lot of what political science is about, is about trying to think of how the, what those uh, driving forces are for disrupting the kind of natural wisdom of the crowd and how to uh, design checks and balances that will, as far as possible, ameliorate those while enhancing the, the, the wisdom of the crowd to track the truth. So he kind of takes the same kind of computer algorithm analysis style and applies it to, uh, to medical journals. And he says, you know, let's look at, let's try and estimate how big the actual data set is. How many tests are being done? How much data is being generated by bedside visits and reports and all kinds of things? Then look at how much data is being published. And the ratio is huge. There's like most, like more than 90% of the stuff, uh, data that gets generated never gets published. And so that sounds really good. It sounds like you've got really good quality control, right? Because people are doing a lot of stuff, but only the really good tests and experiments are getting through to publication. But then you, you have to suppose, well, you don't have to, but let's assume that there's a slight amount of bias on the, on the part of the researchers who, try, who just slightly, slightly, slightly likely, even unconsciously likely to kind of overlook a data point that doesn't fit their yeah, narrative a, or doesn't fit their hypothesis. There's an awful lot of uh, bad, you know, there's an awful lot of bad incentives on researchers to, to uh, uh, mess with data, right? There's the, oh, we need the study to be more interesting so that we can get funding for it. There's the, uh, I wrote a paper about this before and I need to make sure that it, the result in that is proven by my experiment. There's 
there's lots of stuff going on that would make people and of course there's also just personal biases like uh the person running the journal says oh i'm i'm only going to publish things from my friends because i think that they're like have the right idea about stuff okay but let's Let's just suppose that there's two kinds of biases. A slight bias on the part of researchers uh, to, to get a uh, uh, hypothesis fit, a better hypothesis fit bias, and that's a statistically robust d definable thing. And then a slight bias on the part of the journal managers to have more interesting hypotheses being tested and verified. Yeah. And that's also a very easy thing to mathematically model. Now, it turns out that if you've got a little bit of bias on both ends and you've got some data and most of that data has to get published, then you're probably going to do well. But if you've got a huge amount of data and then a little bit of bias from the publisher side and a little bit of bias from the researcher side, that is basically going to be like a searchlight that then goes through this huge uh, morass of data to find the one thing that stands out and works. So that's one kind of a priori argument for why journal articles are really bad. He then does an a posteriori argument for why they're bad, which is by that, that's a looking at the word. top. You need, to, you need to explain that. A okay, so, <laughs> so that, that's like, like an empirical, like, you know, actual science. Rather than just okay, okay, reasoning, yeah. Yeah, he then yeah. goes out and looks at the, at the 49 most cited journal articles over a period of a decade. I think it's like 2000 to 2010, something like that. Um, and and first he filters the most respected and most cross-cited journals, and then from those journals, the 49 uh, best publications. Now, of the so this is the top 50, right? This is like the this is the platinum standard above the, the gold standard of peer-reviewed, placebo-tested, control group, double-blind medical experiments. This is the creme de la creme of that. This is the top of the pyramid most trustworthy stuff he finds of those 49 studies something like 11 hadn't even been retried at all so you don't know how far <laughs> it's going to go if they get retried 60 percent had been retried and exactly the opposite uh conclusion was drawn by the retrials and that's a nightmare you know so that means like more than half of the stuff that is retested is coming out with the null hypothesis, the opposite to the to the one that they were putting forward, getting verified, and some of it's a significant portion, like twenty percent, is not even being redone. Um, and then he goes, does a historical analysis, finds journal articles that have been widely debunked, things that were published, like he looks at the most published things over the last fifty years, and he finds like if a story really does well in the seventies, then people will keep speaking about it as if it's true, even if it's been consistently, repeatedly, and nothing yeah. but debunked since. Yeah. So medicine, so I, one of the things that I did is I, I read Bill Bryson. He's one of my favorite uh, kind of nonfiction pop writers. He's famous for writing a short history of nearly everything, uh, writing a sort of history of Australia, history of the UK, history of the kitchen, and all the stuff you find in it. His latest book that came out at the end of last year was The Body, a user's guide, a kind of, um, you know, he goes through different parts of the body and, and, he, and he does this really good job of telling medical stories. He's got a very precise story of a kind of screw up in medicine. The guy who uh, figures out like a, a cure for TB, he gets that he's Jewish. This is like in the 50s or whatever it was in America. He is a researcher. He's a junior. He doesn't get the attention he wants. His boss gets all the attention. His boss gets him to sign the patent off to the university. 
and his boss ends up getting the Nobel Prize. And his boss has completely flagrantly lied and pretended that he came up with the idea instead of the actual researcher who came up with the idea. And here's the kicker in the story. By like 2000 and whatever, 2003, whatever it was, this original researcher, uh, he, he, dude, he couldn't get published anywhere outside of like, like some Chinese or Indian. No, it was a Bangladeshi journal about dentistry. That's the only place <laughs> that he could get because he sued his boss and he won the lawsuit because he was right. But then everyone was like, you can't trust a guy who's going to sue his boss. So he was completely ostracized until eventually they were like, the original university was like, you know what? We need to give this guy some recognition because he has been so overlooked his whole life. So they call him in to get that university's highest award. A kind of loser's consolation prize. He's not yeah, going to get yeah. the Nobel Prize, but he, at least he gets the university's highest award. The university's highest award is named after his old boss. <laughs> and so he, he gets it and then he dies like a very grumpy, grumpy man. So it's like, even in these very particular, like, there's just so many ways in which the esteem economy in medicine is profoundly screwed up. And what yeah. Bill Bryson points out, which is like a thing I've read lots of places, like lots of estimates and there is huge debate around it. But it seems like plausible to say that until about 1900, any human being anywhere in the planet who got sick and then went to the local doctor, whether it's a Sangoma, a witch doctor, whatever, shaman, uh, like they had a 50-50 chance that that doctor would make things worse. Yes. Like... Finally, we started turning the corner. So, Unidas, everyone agrees, like, real scientific medicine has made amazing strides, but it's quite recent, and it's quite easy to overestimate how, how effective, especially the, the, the very sharp ends of research are at passing the truth from not the truth. No, I, I agree. And anyone who's been through a very... Uh... Uh, a very close brush with the medical system, either because of a loved one's gotten sick or died or because you've gotten sick, uh, you've probably seen this kind of in effect that medicine is a very complicated business and doctors, although they know a lot more than the average Joe, uh, they're still playing a difficult ge a guessing game often um, against yeah. an enormous number of variables that they really can't control for. Uh, yeah. and, and so, you know, it's really difficult to tell what the hell is going on. And of course, the same is in studies, as you're talking about, right? Like, you know, like everything gives yeah, you cancer, yeah. right? If you, if yeah. <laughs> you can go and find articles about how basically everything gives you cancer. Uh, and maybe it's true. Yeah, peanut butter gives but, you cancer, not enough peanut butter gives you cancer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, cigarettes definitely do give you cancer, but it took the medical profession quite a while to figure that one out uh, yeah. for various reasons. And as it turns out, like, while... The tobacco companies were trying to research. A lot of the best research on what gives you cancer was sponsored by tobacco companies who were really excited about doctors being able to prove that other stuff gives you cancer. So it's like, <laughs> even when it works, it often doesn't work because of the reasons that you would expect. It's very counterintuitive. Now, here are two very important things to recognize. One is the placebo effect is incontrovertibly demonstrated to be uh, a, a, a physical phenomenon. People who think that they're getting good medicine are more likely, from good trustworthy doctors, are more likely to heal than people who don't. Yeah. Uh, even if it's just sugar water. 
So the placebo effect is kind of, it seems to me, tied to the esteem economy. It seems like we've got this weird, somewhat unexplained, but very good reason to believe in our doctors, even though we know our doctors have limited resources, limited knowledge, limited insight, because just believing in them makes things better. So I think a lot of people and a lot of the way that society works kind of is geared to satisfying that interest. It's a special extra interest on top of all the usual kinds of uh, veneration for experts and so on. So that's one important factor. Another important factor is disgust. Oh, I think I've lost Gabriel there. Uh, as the, the wind is blowing outside, I hope that he, Clinic he comes back. Oh, wait, there we go. Clinical studies have uh, a little sunbreak. When people are disgusted, it's a, it's a very potent affect. It can, it can cloud and inform their judgment. It can be, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a potent motivator. So people who ordinarily wouldn't do something uh, and who in an abstract context wouldn't consider it to be justifiable to do something on the basis of disgust, if the disgust uh, affect is triggered, will do it. So those both come together with COVID because one of the things that it does, you know, all these masks and gloves and little heebie-jeebie kind of YouTube videos of how the virus infects you and uh, graphs like of it the, growing. That really, good a lot one from, uh, that really good one from, what's it, Kirk Kassat. I can't ever pronounce that YouTube channel's name, but they do the excellent animations. It's worth checking out that one, actually. It's a... Uh, one of the best examples of a sort of explainer information video that you can find on the internet. Um, yeah. But it feels a bit revolting. You see this thing and you're like, this is, I mean, this is like when you look at poo and you have that disgust <laughs> reflex, yeah. it's because like your, our ancestors that saw poo and were pretty disgusted by it uh, generally had a lower chance of dying from, you know, catching poo related diseases uh infections yeah. uh and you see the the COVID thing and i think I, I i think but this is just a kind of edgy hypothesis i think that we've got a lot more disgust around and and then that disgust might uh channel itself you know if you if you can manage that disgust politically then i think you've got a you've got yourself a very powerful blend if you can if you can manage the disgust on the one hand and the yearning to have faith in the healers on the other hand then you can just make a very confident assertion that this is what's going on and you need to shame those who don't agree with me and kind of be repulsed by them and alienate them and you need to embrace and be loyal to this and that natural us kind of inclination that we have is really healers and to be revolted by that which has been identified as uh, uh, pathogenic, pathogenic. So I think that's a bit of a nightmare. And that's a really good reason to to be extra careful about trying to be measured uh, and 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 rational. So with that in mind, I suppose maybe one thing to turn to is a broad question about supply chains, which have been disrupted and questions let's just i mean to start out with we can think about the supply of testing of uh ventilators of icu beds you know 
masks, gloves, other protective equipment, the very basic hardcore medical supply chains have been the sources of a lot of controversy uh, in some countries like America, huge fights about it. In South Africa, almost no fighting about it at all. Although, you know, we've been in lockdown for three weeks. Uh, it took a long time for the testing to get ramped up. It's still not really going that quickly uh, compared to uh, some emerging markets. But n not a lot of complaint. It seems to me like there's an, a curious thing about the supply chain, uh, which is that it's, it's, it's not the obvious thing to look at in combating the disease. The obvious thing to look at is the doctors and the nurses themselves, the people on the front line, as it's described. And the, no, other and the researchers, is, you know, of who are making the, the medicines and all that, the fancy stuff, the sexy stuff. Yeah. And then the bigger picture stuff of the economy as a whole. But I think supply chains have, have, are, are an underestimated uh, part of this equation. And, and, and kind of the thing that triggered that thought in me was that in times of war, it's the supply chain is kind of the last thing you think about, but it can often be decisive. Now, Nicholas, you're a hist you've studied a bit of history, and we like to talk about war. Yeah, so, so tell me about supply chains and war. You know, there's there's a there's a saying that I don't quite agree with, but it's that uh, sort of amateur study tactics, um, professional study uh, strategy, and uh, masters study logistics. Um, now that's not really entirely true uh, for a number of reasons, but I think what it what it's trying to kind of point out is that logistics are actually really vital, and any great military success in human history almost always has some kind of accompanying uh, innovation uh, in logistics or some kind of um, logistical superiority on one side. So, for example, um, you can look at the Second World War as a conflict between uh, two sides, one of which had really good logistics and one which had really bad logistics. The Japanese in the Second World War, for example, under built not nearly enough troop transport ships and so they had to waste warships transporting soldiers around for large parts of the war to all of their sort of island possessions um the 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 famous greek general alexander the great uh who, you know went on this huge conquering spree across the whole of uh, uh the middle east he uh was in a lot of ways successful because of innovations in Greek military logistics. They moved away from using ox carts to using carts drawn by horses, which were much faster um, and were less prone to sort of, you know, getting stuck in various things and because uh, oxen are very slow. Um, time and time again, you see that the side that has better logistics often just wins because better logistics means you can have, uh, you know, the bullets at the front or the weapons at the front that you need. It means that you can uh, food, which in uh, especially in ancient times was really important because you need to be well fed to be able to fight in a very physical way. Um, so logistics is really, really important. And if you don't have good logistics, you almost never can succeed in any kind of military conflict. But I think uh, the sort of point that Gabriel's getting at here is that in a lot of uh, situations, particularly in you know our current one, in any kind of crisis situation, if you don't get uh, what's needed to where it needs to be, which is a much more complicated exercise than anyone ever gives a credit for. Um, it's actually going to do a lot of good. So, for example, should we discover tomorrow that, uh, let's say, penicillin or, I don't know, aspirin or something uh, kills coronavirus, right? Which, of course, it doesn't, but, you know, let's just say we yeah. assumed that. 
we think, oh, well, our problems are solved. Well, no, not quite, because even though those things are widely available, the amount suddenly needed and uh, demanded by the market would be absolutely enormous. And you see every single one of those factories that produce those goods overwhelmed and not able to get enough stuff out, and there'd be shortages and people would panic buy, and you get all sorts of breaks in the supply chain that would take a lot of effort to recover. And so it's very important that we actually plan ahead for some of these things as far as we are able, which is why it was a very good thing that uh, Bill Gates, who's been a bit obsessed with pandemic planning for quite a few yeah. years and sort of predicted COVID, um, has already started building factories to produce vaccines um, or medication for COVID that don't exist yet, but that when they yeah. do exist, they will be able to be produced immediately. Uh, yeah. And that kind of forward thinking is actually really important. I like that. I think it's key. And I think that it is one of the sad things about South Africa that we do have, you know, I, when I think of procurement management, that has really been one of the less emphasized but terribly tragic tales of South Africa's downfall is that we've been every single bit of government procurement and so much private sector procurement has been inefficient, has been ineffective. Procurement officers have been kind of given this ideological mandate that has put efficiency in the back seat. And I think that doesn't just mean extra spend on coal because you're buying it from the Guptas and it's rubbish coal and, you know, the extra spend on the form of transport because you have to get your cousin to run the uh, trams. It also means the kinds of people that occupy human processes are, are are more likely to be social networkers and less likely to be the kinds of people yeah. who are and like, you know, five o'clock and the shipment hasn't arrived. I could go yeah. to bed or I could stay up until two in the morning to make sure that the thing has left and that it's fine. It, and those be a logistics 12, operator. Hours, 12 hours, two hours, seven hours, three days. All of those little things, that's what adds up to the difference between tests coming out at the same time as the lockdown and tests coming out three weeks later. That's the difference between medicines arriving before people die and then arriving after people die. Test kits being, you know, figuring out that this test kit is getting false positives and we need to replace it and not figuring that out. It's, it's a huge, it's like a, it's a bad problem. To be, a, to be an operations manager requires an enormous amount of, uh, of skill, actually. And it's not a very easy to quantify skill, but it's a sort of, it's a mixture of various things. It's people management, it's resource management, it's time management. Um, and it can mean the difference between success and failure. A anyone who's ever had to plan any kind of event knows exactly like how even something like a birthday party, which should be quite simple, can actually turn into quite a nightmare. Just because logistics, the simple things, you think, oh, we just buy food and drinks and then get a bunch of people to a place. Well, you know, this person does this thing and they don't listen to messages and then the supply for this is run out or doesn't come and this kind of drink is not yeah. available. And it's a constant exercise in problem solving. And, uh, it, it, you know, I always think about like hypotheticals. So people talk about uh, how... America produces an enormous amount of food that they throw away, but then some countries, you know, people struggle to buy food. Well, at least one of the things going on there, and this is often used by kind of uh, socialistic types to talk about how the world is so unfair and so uneven. Well, let's assume that we gathered up all of the food in the world into one warehouse and then we're going to evenly distribute it to the entire population. You would still see disparities because of logistics, right? Uh, yeah. getting food to a village in rural Niger 
uh, in the you know on the edge of the Sahara Desert is much harder than getting it to New York City. So yeah, uh, logistics is actually really difficult, and just having everything you want uh, is not actually necessarily going to be able to mean that you can do something because you also have to get what you have to where it needs to be, which is a very complicated and very difficult process. Um, uh, Gabriel, uh, you wanted to segue. We did lose connection a bit there in the middle, so uh, hopefully this is all all right for our viewers' continuity. But uh, what, what yeah, do you hopefully this makes sense. But but so I think you, I think there's an interesting point. So we went from uh, logistics around medicine to logistics around food in the hypothetical scenario that there's lots of food and you want to get to, to starving people in Niger. But that's actually quite pertinent to uh, a story that I'm investigating in. Uh, South Africa in relation to COVID, uh, and that's to do with massive chicken producers. Now, okay. because of the uh, restriction on KFC, on steers, on Fisherways, Debenairs, uh, McDonald's, all of uh, my staple staples of my diet. Yeah, so I had to totally reinvent myself. Uh, in terms of by if I am what I eat, I must be a different person now because I don't have steers anymore. I know but the, those companies are major chicken consumers. And, and the way that they work is they've got very specified kinds of chickens that they want. They want them at a very specified size, uh, maturity of the broiler chicken. A broiler chicken is a chicken that's bred just to be eaten. And they have not been able to sell. So... Some of so they've kept buying. So but, in other words, uh, either either essential business, even essential businesses, are basically getting whacked by this lockdown. Well, because they haven't been classified as an essential business. Because because prepared food has there's been this sort of big war against prepared food, so that yeah, uh, which is just insane, really. Which is crazy. So, so, so these guys, okay, but so this is the story I've been told. It's not verified. This is what I'm trying to work on verifying. But the story I've been told is that the major chicken producers have been selling to the major chicken consumers in terms of fast food retail. The major chicken consumers have not been able to sell those chickens, so they've been putting them in cold storage. But now their cold storage units are full, and the chicken producers are sitting with broilers that they cannot sell to anyone else in the market, they don't mean the relevant standards. They can't give them away because there are health standards that they're not going to be able to meet uh, without end up ending up spending sort of more than the value of the chicken. Because the logistics, as you say, it's no good having 10,000 chickens. You have to find a way to get them somewhere. You have to find a way to make sure that they pass the relevant tests for, uh, for health and safety standards. And usually those costs are borne by the consumer. There's no consumer to bear those costs. So they've been, I'm told, negotiations with the government to try and get them to maybe buy off the chickens and then give them away, fallen through. And so it might be the case that it's already started to happen. It might be the case that it's something that does start to happen, the gassing of tens of thousands of chickens, uh, basically, you know, so that their corpses just get dumped, uh, incinerated. So in other and words, while we're about to have a big hunger crisis, the people are basically being forced to burn food or destroy food. Yeah. So that's a nightmare. And part of the reason that I'm working on the story is I, you know, someone uh, kind of said, you know, this is what's going on. I said, can you, can you give me independently verifiable evidence? Uh, that person said, uh, not yet. 
uh, trying to get clearance, but from both sides, from the company side, uh, I won't say which one, there's, there's a feeling of apprehension, I'm told, that, you know, if they were to try and blow the whistle here, the narrative would be turned against them and people would be saying, well, you know, this is typically typical uh, corporate greed. These guys are, are, are destroying food when the, when the masses go hungry, not attending to the nuances of the costs involved because of uh, regulation. Uh, so it's like, I mean, anyway, so that's just a potential nightmare. Let's go to a more explicit nightmare, something where I was being told similar stories two weeks ago, and now it has come to the fore. Cigarette, uh, a cigarette, a major cigarette producer or consortium of major cigarette producers has just opened a lawsuit against the government to say that it's uh, banning of the sale of tobacco, or more strictly the banning of the resupply of retailers with tobacco, is, uh, shall we say, unconstitutional, shall we say illegal, shall we say does not comport uh, with the rational standards of the national lockdown. So their heads of argument open with the claim that for sure we support the lockdown in broad strokes, but we think that it shouldn't be applying to us, and here's why. Uh, and then various arguments about people going into tobacco withdrawal being a health hazard, being a safety hazard, and 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 the supply of illicit tobacco uh, being something we've already got uh, reports of people crossing borders uh, to get illicit booze and cigarettes, and you know. There's just this extra feature to the tobacco, which which comes to my mind from Jacques Poe's book, The President's Keepers, which I still take to be the definitive work on uh, the last decade of the ANC or, or Zuma's era of the decade of, of the ANC. And the State Capture the, Project, as it's called. Yes. And, and, and one of the things that's so beautiful about the book is it starts out with Jacques Poe. Um, retired journalist, kind of feeling a bit neglected, but actually feeling pretty jolly about life. He's married. He's got a kind of uh, bed and breakfast hotel vibe that's very luxurious, and he's cooking delicious food and, uh, you know, hosting these wedding parties, and it's all jolly nice. And then someone says to him, Jacques, there's one more story you have to write. What is it, says Jacques? Well, I can't tell you you're going to have to go to Russia to figure it out. Oh, this is what everyone is waiting for. The Russians are the guys taking over the government. And Jacques Poe goes to Russia, and basically it turns out that was a big red herring. And the real story is, like, much more than Putin, the guys who really managed to take over the government were carnilinks, the cigarette smugglers. You know, this is a very basic kind of mafiosa story of a black market being created by uh, syntax and poor administration of the... Uh, of the regulations, you know, if you're going to have those regulations, you've got to then enforce. It's not being enforced. So you've got these guys who are already not keen on paying taxes and have a huge interest in kneecapping the South African revenue uh, services, the, the tax collector. And they then, you know, are instrumental in deposing uh, Johan van Logerent, the VIP unit. Uh, uh, they get in bed with those who spread the rogue unit story and uh, its history from there. Now, one of the things that Jacques Poe did not say was that the major cigarette smugglers have been taken down 
at the time of publishing that book. And one of the things that I haven't seen subsequently have is evidence to the effect that uh, cigarette smuggling in South Africa is not still an endemic, is not still a significant portion indeed, of the market. Indeed, they still make the news, right? Didn't uh, after the publishing of that book, didn't Malema uh, have a whole mini scandal about how he was allegedly living in the house of one of these alleged cigarette smugglers? I think it was Mark Lifman, and I think he was living in the house. And the, you know, the scandal from the EFF's point of view was that his address had been exposed. Um, so, you know. One of the things about the Ramaphosa story is you've got this picture of a really benign dictator, but surrounded by rapscallions. Now, I don't take that story altogether seriously because I wonder, because I find Ramaphosa very enigmatic, whether he is the benign angel that his fans make him out to be. But I wish his fans would at least take their own story seriously. If they do think he's surrounded by Zuma loyalists, sort of neophyte kleptocrats, like particularly the known ones in, for example, the cigarette industry. I wish they would have been asking very serious questions from the first moment when South Africa took the extraordinary measure of banning cigarette sales, of asking whether this is in the interest of already existing illicit tobacco dealers. Answer, it ah, is. And then to ask the question, question of whether... The they, the suction or the traction in rem, in the president's inner circle to have an idea like ban tobacco because it's bad for the lungs and COVID gets into the lungs. So let's not think too hard about the medicine. It's, it's a good idea to ban it. If, if there's someone that they have in there who could be making that argument for them to drive it through in the hopes that uh, rational or not, uh, you know, anything that seems uh hygienic and to protect the people our people as ramaphosa calls uh some of the south africans he represents uh you know whether whether that's how the idea lands now i don't know if that's how the idea lands but i think it's a, a sort of an indictment on those who who, who carry carry the ramaphoric flag that they aren't trying harder to as it were protect him from uh the potential infiltration of his inner circle by exactly these kinds of uh, archetypal mafioso forces, which you find everywhere in the world. I mean, and well, everywhere I that think, it works, it works because people ask the questions immediately and, and then either you get a good answer or you get a bad answer and then you push for change. Yeah, one is led to wonder then if perhaps these defenders of Ramaphosa have some ulterior motive other than a true belief in Ramaphosa uh, for defending him. Exactly. Now, a question I want to ask about that. Nick, if in Kosozana, this country in 2018... I remember Daily Maverick at the end of the year made Ramaphosa their man of the year. And they didn't say one good thing that he did, but they did say that uh, if Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma was president today instead of Ramaphosa, what would she have done differently? Uh, there'd probably be a, a slightly more ostentatious um, State of the Nation speech that would have been uh, a little bit more boring, probably, with a little bit less uh, rhetorical flair. Um, and, uh, yeah, maybe there would have been, um, yeah, I can't think of much, to be honest. I also, uh, I suspect that the media would have, uh, suddenly discovered the benefits of the populist, um, in Kosasana Tlemini Zuma and how she was actually so great and that sellout Ramaphosa was, uh, wasn't that great. So, you know, I don't think there'd be that much difference. Maybe we'd still be building the nuclear power plant. 
Right. I mean, maybe we'd be bankrupt because we're building a nuclear power plant. Oh, wait, we're bankrupt already. Maybe we'd be having uh, delayed and retarded supply chains. Oh, we have those already when it comes to medical supplies. Also, you know, here's what I think would be different. One of the major stories carried by the BBC and a lot of other international networks has been, uh, uh, literally, I've seen this, this headline over and over again. What do all the leaders of the world who've responded best to COVID have in common? They are women. Now, Zuma is a woman. And I think uh, would have been lumped into that. You know, South Africa has been hugely praised yeah, for its quick pace lockdown. Our, the way that we were transforming everything in terms of gender, we get lots of positive headlines out of that. Be a good time. She's, she's a medical expert. We've had a lot of like, oh, this is great. We've got, a, we've got someone with real expertise here. Oh, this is great. We've got someone who's the head of the AU, so we can have a lot of AU coordination. I mean, I think Nkosazana Lamina Zuma, just like Ramaphosa, would be shining in this in this period. And so I think this sort of idea that uh, he and she are radically different, uh, I don't know. It seems to struggle when you imagine her being the leader right now. It also seems to struggle when you consider the fact that, you know, the, the real worry was that if she came to lead none of the state capturers would go to jail. Well, none of them have gone to jail anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, not even close. It, oh, did the Zonda Commission, when did it actually end? Is it over? Did it just get suspended because of COVID? I, I'm not clear. No, I'm pretty sure. Dude, I think it's still happening. I think it's happening right now. I think it's the, <laughs> somewhere. Think yeah. it's been happening in the place that time forgot. And like COVID, like COVID will never get there. Neither will, will Shamila Batoy's public prosecuting team to get the evidence that's already been laid on the table to get some there's, indictments. There's to more, get uh, there's more quote unquote bombshell revelations uh, that, that are being dispensed even to this minute. And uh, yet no one seems to get any closer to jail regardless of what's said. So it's a nightmare and it's a nightmare that, uh, that, that uh, fast food retailers are closed. It seems really weird to me that, Cigarette sales banned. It seems really weird, and that there's so little kind of questioning of that outside. I mean, I'm not saying on Facebook I don't see a lot of people moaning about it, but this uh, this lawsuit will be interesting. Um, another another kind of gripe, I suppose. My my bigger picture rant about this is is to try and understand why uh, the ANC is so popular right now, particularly amongst people that don't that are usually quite skeptical of it and, and usually quite disappointed in it uh, because it had so much promise and it did so much good work to start with. What what, what could we call them? The soft left, maybe? Hmm. Now, I think, it's, I think it's partly because of a mistake made by, again, people that ideologically are usually in tune with us. So, if you are, uh, if you believe in the night watchman state, in other words, you think the state's real job is to protect uh, people's lives, you know, stop crime, uh, stop property. Yes, exactly those three. If that's what you think the, the state's major job is, then you might find yourself wondering, well, should the state really be interfering in a pandemic? Should it have the right to issue lockdowns? Doesn't that seem crazy? And then you and then you kind of look around you at everyone who thinks it's a good idea, and either you then take the radical line of like there should be no lockdown on principle, and then you try and go and find facts 
as you were saying earlier, to justify your view. Whenever a study comes out that says the case fatality ratio is lower than we'd previously anticipated, then you say, well, this just proves that we should not have a lockdown. Or you find yourself saying, well, you know, I used to be a night watchman state kind of guy or, 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 or a woman or whatever, but now I'm looking around me and I'm thinking, you know, this thing does threaten to kill uh, millions and millions around the world and huge numbers in South Africa. And uh, it does seem just right to protect life. And if protecting life means undermining people's rights, liberties to travel and, and eroding their property rights by, you know, shutting down factories, then, then maybe that's justified. And maybe there's a way I can try and make sense of it. But, you know, you, you, you end up trying to think on your feet about very deep and profound issues. Now, I think it's important to turn back at moments like this to uh, great thinkers like Milton Friedman, who in a lot of ways is about as conservative sort of small state, night watchman state as, as any major influential economist, political theorist has ever been. And to recognize that he, you know, consistently recognized that there are certain kinds of problems for which the state is endowed with special powers to overcome those problems. One of them is war and one of them is a pandemic. And you don't have to think of the pandemic altogether as being like war. It's different to war. We don't have a national enemy, but we do have a national disaster. And it's just good and proper for the state to be intervening well, in the way it does. Of, and, and, it's, of, and it's like very logically connected to the very ideas about externalities. Yeah, and the one, fact of the, that one of the very important differences between a, a pandemic and a war is that the pandemic doesn't spy on you if you start divulging uh, state secrets. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Unlike, yeah, unlike in a war where you need to control information to prevent the enemy getting hold of it. In a pandemic, sure, there can be disinformation, but the virus isn't spying on you. Yeah. So the, so the government controls of information are much more worrying and much less justified than they would be if we were actually in the analogous war. And I think that's a, yeah, it's a good point to underline. Um, so, but th this is like a general problem, like if the right, as it were, or the center most importantly. Guys, here's a, here's a principled reason that we buy into the lockdown. There are these externalities of the disease in particular. When the health system is overwhelmed, it means everyone who's paid their insurance, everyone who's uh, got their uh, benefits from their employment or their benefits that go to all citizens, they are then deprived of their access to healthcare by the fact that the whole system is being overwhelmed. So flattening the curve makes sense to prevent the overwhelming of the healthcare system, which is required in order for everyone's property, as in their right to access that system, exists. So you need to protect those rights by to life and to health uh, and to the and to the, the property relations of health by uh, flattening the curve. Uh, and so we're we're not floundering here as people who generally suspicious of big state inter interventions. We really we really understand them and we really endorse them and we think it's very important and it's very important that they're done properly. We don't just think that it's lockdown or not lockdown. We think that there's better lockdowns and worse lockdowns. There's lockdowns in which the police and the army are killing people and there's lockdowns in which they're not doing that. There's uh, lockdowns where goods are arbitrarily people. banned for no particularly good reason and then there are lockdowns where people can get most of the goods they want despite uh, keeping their distance from others. Yeah. So, so, so I think the, the center's failure to, to make that argument loud and clear is part of the problem. But here's the other part of the problem. The left comes in two guises, in my view. 
there's a really solid insight in the left, which is that um, inheritance creates a deep problem in society where you get a lot of people, where you get a few people inheriting a lot of wealth and a lot of people inheriting no wealth. And that creates a kind of imbalance in status. It also creates a kind of imbalance in uh, productivity, in, in, in efficiency, because you, you, you might find that, you know, people who've got a lot of wealth aren't, because they haven't gotten it by particularly meritricious means, aren't very good at uh, using that wealth. Meritocratic rather than meritricious, sorry. So there, there, there is a challenge. Delicious, though. Yes, it means lying. Though. Anyway, so by, by some, something like a meritricious mean, I suppose, being born to rich parents, if you think you chose them, then there's something meretricious to that, for sure. So, uh, so the left has a good point there in being uh, suspicious of and sometimes opposed to uh, completely unchecked inheritance. There's a, a dark side to the left, which is that it's, Another strand of the left is just opposed to value add. It's opposed to work. It hates work. It thinks work is bullshit. David Graeber, who's a, a writer that really has changed my life and he's written some really good things, you know, his most famous book is called Bullshit Jobs and he kind of argues that most work is bullshit and we should just find ways of not working because it doesn't really mean anything anyway. And a lot of the reason that it's so popular is that it's there's something so satisfying about creating this little anti-work esteem team. And I think we all kind of do it on a Friday afternoon where it's time to break for the weekend. We're like, ah, work is rubbish. Let's go have a party. Yeah, nothing means, and someone yeah, at the party brings up work and you're like, stop talking about work. Sorry, Nick. No, I was just saying it's very tempting, very self-indulgent. There's a lot of uh, negative incentives there to, uh, to indulge in the work is pointless and we should all just be paid to do nothing. Yeah. And so, so, I think we have it particularly badly in South Africa. And to draw like a 200-year loop, you know, I start with the, the first workers' revolution that really excites me is the abolition of slavery in the United Kingdom. The story there goes something like this. A lot of people know that slavery is immoral at the start of the 19th century, but they kind of think that you have to go along with it and anyone who criticizes it gets ostracized and tabooed. And then people figure out, you know, slaves are adding value and there's something dignified in adding value and they're doing it with their hands. And there's a new sense of like we in England and Wales and Scotland, we're adding a lot of value and up with our hands in the newly established factories of industrializing uh, UK. And, you know, we don't if the slaves have this very low status and they're value adders, then in a way that's reducing our status and all people who are adding value through manual labor should be fully respected as having that dignity of work. And so we should and so we should grant these people the rights that everyone deserves. And so you get this expansion of, of liberty. But then comes Marx after that, who, who says that there's never been a workers' revolution of the international sort that had actually already happened. And, and, and he calls for one, but on much more sort of uh, anti-value-add grounds. And the anti-consumerist movements of the sort of woke 21st century really tap back into that vein. So we've got that injection from America. People are like, you know, the problem with society is that people just think too much about money. They think too much about how to try to make money. And, and, you, and you should spend more time kind of looking at the sunset and contemplating life's imponderables and, and being nice to your family and so on. And, and, and crocheting and, and often eating vegetarian-based food. 
So that's one side of it. The other side of it that we had particularly badly in South Africa after the ANC is driven into the arms of the Communist Party of Moscow by the extremely ignorant and uh, wicked uh, policies of, of the Nats in apartheid is that you get this value, anti-value add kind of cri de coeur, um, which, which continues to be sung uh, today by at ANC rallies. My mother was a domestic worker. My father was a gardener. That's why I'm a communist. So there's this attitude of looking at people who work very hard during apartheid South Africa, black people in particular, and seeing a shame in them. Now there was a shame in the system, but I would I would I see a lot of a lot to admire in those people who worked really hard. I think of David Goldblatt, probably South Africa's greatest photographer, who took lots of photos of people coming from Shoshanguve, other townships, sort of in buses and in trains, having to wake up at three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning and then take three hour rides to get to work. Spatial planning. And, you know, I, I've been in galleries so many times with people looking at those pictures, uh, you know, black and white people, but all of the upper crust who look at those pictures and say, oh, how disgraceful. Whereas what I see are the faces of those people. And I think, well, the obstacles that they're having to fight are disgraceful. But those people themselves are huge, are amazing to me. I have, it, it just evokes an astonishing pride in, in, a kind of South African work ethic that they were exemplifying because they wanted to make the money to there give was, the chance kids a better chance for a future life. There was previously a strand in socialist thought that did actually uh, sort of value the sort of work with your hands, hardworking uh, person who was put upon um, quite a lot, right? Uh, and it's weird that in South Africa we have just completely, that's become so super unfashionable. We've got this kind of almost aristocratic opinion that you're kind of talking about that, uh, oh, you know, people have to work Precisely. with their hands. That's such a shame. That's disgusting. How, 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 what a tragedy that people are being forced to work in these uh, these roles, like being a maid or a gardener or something like that. Yeah, uh, being a hard worker and being a manual laborer. South Africa has somehow got the esteemed distribution of Victoria's Victorian England's upper crust. Oh, no. And this is, this is actually uh, relatively common in older societies, but sort of the pre-capitalist world, um, is to work with your hands as seen as, 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 as you know, the lowest of the low. And that's why sometimes uh, slavery was supported by even the lower classes, is because yeah. uh, slavery meant that you could then say, oh, well, these peasants... Uh, the, you know, we, it's only slaves who do that work. We don't have to do that. We might be poor, but at least we're not, you know, people who have we, to at dig least a hole. We're not those guys. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. So, so I think that 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 uh, idea, that that strand of ideology, has overwhelmed a lot of the literati, a lot of the glitterati, and uh, a lot of the political elite in this country. And so, we kind of have this very pro not working attitude and this very anti-work attitude. And we very get very excited when people strike. That somehow seems great. You know, if people are doing anything that you want to put in front of a camera, then that's great. But if people are doing the kinds of boring menial tasks that actually make societies great, but aren't particularly interesting moment to moment, then there's not a lot going. And you can also see that in the YouTube videos. You know, I've, there's so many videos out there of people building amazing things, coming from China, coming from the Middle East, coming from America. Like, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a time-lapse video of something getting built in South Africa. It's just not something that we yearn <laughs> to <laughs> celebrate. No, of course uh, not. 
and I, I do think Casile, I don't know what we'd even time lapse, but you know. Yeah, but so yeah. but so here's the thing. So so if you hate work, like it's quite hard for you to like that is going to create problems for you. You can you can hate work and it's like being in being in high school, you know, you're the class clown, you're like, I hate studying, and you kind of tell some jokes and the rest of the class gets distracted. But as soon as they start facing tests and exams and then failing, that person you expect to become less popular because people are like, you know, the thing about hating work is eventually there's nothing left, right? There's there's no more food to eat. This was the South Korea's uh, basic line for the last 60 years that made it so great. It was like, if you don't want to work, that's fine, but don't eat. And when people start switching onto that, then they start being a bit meaner to the class clowns, and eventually the class clowns get in line and start doing the work as well. We haven't had that moment. I mean, we've had it somewhat. Popularity in the ANC has slipped. Uh, SACP has certainly slipped. EFF looking on looking like on it's in a different position now. But what the pandemic does is present the one situation in which not working has a very good basis. Like not yeah. working for a little bit of time is really the right thing to do. So I think of this as like the, 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 the person who loves music but is really rubbish at playing any instruments and very lazy so he doesn't want to learn any instrument, instruments. So, but he keeps hanging around. So the conductor says, well, you can play the triangle. Right, and all you have to do is hold the triangle and hit it once with a stick. It's like a child can do it. And there is a moment in Wagner's like ring cycle. It's like three days of music in the fourth movement of the third of the third opera. Like everything goes quiet, and the triangle guy just hits the triangle, and like he always gets a standing ovation, right? Because everything else is stopped, and now it's like the one moment for that thing to shine. And this is this is the ANC's moment. This is the silence of the global economy and the, and the guy with the triangle cling, hitting it out and being like, well, for once, not working is the right thing to do. And I think South Africans kind of at some level get that and are super proud that we are we're, we're, we're ahead of the curve. You know, we're better than the rest of the world at not working. And all of the world is trying to not work for a minute. And we're the best. And that makes us patriotically proud. Well, what a thing to be proud of. Uh, we are running a bit over time here. I do want to just uh, pop in one thing quickly before the end, um, which we were kind of planning to talk about, but we've sort of run out of time a bit, is um, the WHO, the World Health Organization. Um, so, of course, Trump has cut American funding to it. Uh, just after we said that the WHO should be significantly reformed and maybe chucked out. Uh, so thank you to yeah. President Trump for taking our suggestion. Uh, that's always appreciated. Um, and now Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe says uh, that uh, the WHO has, quote, issues and that after the pandemic is over, Japan will have to renew its financial uh, review, its financial contributions. Um, so it looks like they're probably going to join the U.S. And I just want to rant a little bit about... You know, it's fine to say, as far as I'm concerned, that the WHO has done some good stuff or maybe we need an international organization like it. But, you know, claiming that it's the centerpiece of, of, of virus uh, response or that it never covered for the Chinese or that it's just a stellar organization that mean old Trump is bullying. And there have been some people who've tried to take that line, uh, even in serious publications, I think even the uh, the... American fact checkers at Politi PolitiFact uh, yeah. tried some version of that. Yeah. It's just rubbish. The World Health Organization, uh, as as uh, 
uh, economist and demographer Lyman Stone explained, it's largely just a body for uh, occasionally coordinating, but it doesn't do that much anymore. Uh, it funds, it gives out grants to vaccine research, but that's not a very big issue in this debate because in this pandemic, because, the, you know, those people are already largely getting funded. Um, and so a lot of what it does is just fly people to conferences, which, you know, it's, it's kind of nice, but it's really not that important. Uh, but it's... You have some perspective on that. The, yeah. the, the WHO's budget of flying people around is about 200 plus million dollars a year. The US's yeah. contributions to the WHO average at around like a hundred million dollars that they've like signed up to give and they'll and they'll probably give that no matter what. And then an extra three hundred million dollars on what's called voluntary or discretionary uh, spend. So I think the main lever that Trump has at the moment is to withdraw the voluntary spend. And if it yeah. does, WHO is already not spending that two hundred million dollars on international flights. It's not actually even making a dent in their bottom line because they spend so much money. It's like you could just take all the money that the U.S. is giving them and spend it on international flights, take away the flights, take away the money the U.S. is giving them, and they're still in the same position. So, you know, I think that gives a sense of how contorted the WHO's uh, yeah, reputation just, is. They can they can avoid most of the problems of withdrawal of American funding if uh, they just hold a couple of video conferences rather than flying people to five star hotels. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think uh, that it is a horrid, terrible organization, and people really shouldn't be defending it. But uh, we'll save, I think, the beating up on China for next week. Is there anything you want to want to add at the end here, Gabriel? Yeah, I just want to say that Dr. Tedro, the head of the WHO. Uh, is from he was the minister of health in ethiopia and the allegations i mean it's flipping clear as day that multiple doctors multiple publications recorded that ethiopia had multiple cholera outbreaks during his tenure and he denied that they were cholera outbreaks he said they were watery diarrhea acute and watery so, diarrhea <laughs> acute watery diarrhea i beg your pardon so he's pulled off the trick once of saving face instead of saving lives and it, he might be just the guy to pull it off again and uh, it's hugely unfortunate that uh, black solidarity will mean that a lot of people in South Africa, white, black, Indian, and colored, will automatically assume that if a black man is being attacked, it must be because of his race. But they should look up on his record. And I think that uh, Abiy Ahmed, the Ethiopian president, is in a very tricky position here because he is, you know, most recently uh, laureated Nobel Peace Prize winner, uh, hugely respected around the world. And uh, I think. Uh, if anyone is going to from Africa, is ever, if anyone is going to bust the Africa block, stop the Africa block from unilaterally supporting China and supporting the WHO and going against America, which has been our pattern of behavior for uh, decades, then it's going to be Ethiopia. And so that's the space to watch. And of course, a lot of this argument uh, uh, protecting the head of the WHO from criticism and claiming that attacks on him are racist is being pushed by China. China, which is currently, as we speak, uh, has areas of the country that are discriminating against uh, Africans and black people, preventing them from buying food in places and kicking them out of their accommodation, yeah. um, simply yeah. because of a internet rumor uh, that that uh, the virus was particularly spreading amongst Nigerians in China. Uh, yeah. So, so there was it's a wonderful moment. hypocritical. Yeah. So, but you know, it takes one to know one. I was listening to a radio interview here on, I think it was uh, Uranya FM, 
uh, OFM, Orange FM, with Musi Maimani, who crawled back out of the woodwork, to say that, uh, you know, it's a little bit unfortunate that these Chinese guys are doing this, but generally China's great. You know, main headline, China's great, Trump is evil, and we need to support the Chinese. <laughs> okay, so this has been the grumpy edition of the Daily French Show. <laughs> No, no, the two crickets, two crickets. <laughs> this is much, oh, too chaotic to, much too chaotic to be a daily French show. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Gabriel? <laughs> no, that's it for me. All right. Have a good one, everyone. We'll see you around. <laughs>